0: We're continuing our journey uh, uh, as, as we look at simply Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, this morning we're going to continue looking at what Jesus is teaching about prayer. I remember a story that, that I have heard of some African believers uh, who um, always had this very personal own prayer spot that they would go to. Um, Get away from the village, get, get away from the noise of the people and go a little bit outside of the village. And uh, they would pour out their hearts to God in prayer. And very often as the people travel to those places, not far away, but uh, you would observe a path being formed in the ground. Don't, don't, don't you do that? Sometimes you see a, a nice bit of green grass that you're not supposed to go on. You know, And people taking a shortcut, they just go over it and suddenly this path begins to be formed. And uh, it is said that very often they would encourage one another in the church. They would speak to, to one another when there was a sense that some of them would begin to neglect their own prayer life. Because it began to be very apparent to others. And very often lovingly, not with a judgmental spirit, you know, one would come... To the other, it would say, brother, sister, the grass is growing on your path. It's almost like a coded word to say, your prayer life isn't as it should be. You may be sad or happy this morning that nobody can track your own prayer life and my prayer life. Fortunately, for me and you, we we don't have a path that people can observe and say, Christy, grass is growing on your path. You're not really involved in praying much. But the question still remains for every single one of us this morning How is your prayer life? How is my prayer life? And it's a significant question. I guess probably if we were to be having a moment of honesty, the vast majority of us would say, it's not quite like the grass is growing on my path, but it isn't well worn either. The truth probably would be that every single one of us would say, I still got to learn a lot about prayer, and I want to develop more my prayer life. I want to grow in my prayer life. And I'm so glad that Jesus, approached by the disciples, as we looked last time, when we looked at what he was teaching in Luke, in in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, they came to him and they said, Jesus teaches how to pray. And they were brilliant at observing something about Jesus that compelled them to ask to learn that. We do that, don't we? At least we used to you grow up as a child with your parents and you observe your parents having a particular skill and and you say teach me how to do that or you see a teacher in school or or, or somebody who's a coach or, or or somebody that's a friend they know how to do something and you want to learn the same trade the same um vocation the the, the same Uh, tricks, anything that you want to learn, you tend to go to them and say, teach me how to do that. Teach me how to do that. Because there was a hunger in the disciples' life to have what Jesus had in terms of his prayer life. And that's very powerful. It was endearing to them. And Jesus teaches them a a very shortened, uh, in in, in Luke's gospel, a shortened version of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And we looked at that last time, and you need to kind of delve back into that to to look at it. And it was more of a pragmatic framework that Jesus was setting. Very brief, simple explanation of what prayer should be like, not necessarily to be repeated, and the only prayer that we can say. But now... Jesus continues, and I think what he does, he brings a powerful imagery attached to it. Good preachers do this for me, and and, and hopefully you can resonate with that. You and I would know that we have had illustrations that we would have heard 15, 20, if you've been in church for a long time, like me, 15, 20 years ago. And very often, you can't remember the sermon, but you remember the illustration. Isn't that true? Some really good illustrations that you tend to remember, because story is powerful and has a way of attaching itself to a truth. And while you don't remember the sermon, you usually remember the point that the story was making. And after Jesus gave this framework, he now begins with a powerful imagery that's actually quite emotive to try to encourage us to discover what God is like and why we should be praying. Here we go. Verse 5 to verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer them. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, but yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, fathers... If your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is using a story and very illustrative language to try to get the point across. Keep praying, God is willing. Keep praying, God is willing. One of the interesting things with the parables or the stories that Jesus tells, we tend to come to them with a Greek mindset, and the Greek mindset deconstructs every aspect of the story. The Jewish mindset was different. You had a story with a main point. You don't deconstruct the whole story. You don't look for little details. And sometimes preachers love to do this with a, with a parable of the prodigal son. First of all, they probably get the focus wrong because the focus was the older son, not the younger son. That's one aside. And then they begin to deconstruct. And when the son comes home, you know, the preachers interpret about the ring and about the sandals and about the cloak. When really what Jesus was trying to do is make one main point. And it's the same that Jesus is doing here. So let's not deconstruct the whole story because otherwise we get ourselves a little bit entangled. But I think what Jesus is trying to say, and I've pulled a a few things that would be helpful to us to encourage us to be confident in our praying because that's what Jesus is trying to do with the disciples when he gives them that picture. One of them is, is, is simply be proactive. Be proactive. Ask And he will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Seek, ask, knock. There is something about prayer that isn't passive. The temptation for a a, a lot of people in the world in which we live in is to have this fatalistic view of God. It's like whatever will be, will be. What's the point on praying? I even had a conversation with somebody who was in in leadership in our church, and they would be saying, well, you know, I'm I'm not really convinced about the fact that I should be praying. I can't change God's mind anyway. God is God, and he does whatever he wants, and there's there's kind of no point in praying. Bit of a kind of hyper-Calvinistic sort of approach to things. And I think it's, it's either this sort of uh, fatalistic view of God, thinking, well, what's the point in praying? God does whatever he wants. He's not interested in me. And it could be a bit of laziness in ourselves, thinking, you know, first of all, I go to the doctor, I go and talk to the GP, and I go and talk to the person at the bank about a problem that I have, and I go and talk to the mortgage people, and I go and talk to the child psychologist, and none of those are wrong. But it seems like it's easier to do those things, but we tend to be quite lazy, forgive me, lazy when it comes to prayer and bringing it to God. We're very proactive with the people that we can see and touch, their flesh and bone, but somehow not quite as proactive with the God that sees us. And Jesus is saying, seek, ask, knock. And maybe the reason why we are not proactive is we probably think, as I was suggesting to you, we can do it ourselves or somebody else can do it for us, so therefore we don't need God. The other one is that, and they're both lies, the other one is God is not interested. This issue is not for God. This issue is about the bank and my health and my child and my job and my neighbors. What's that got to do with God? God's not interested in those kind of things. And both are lies. Either the sense of I can do it myself or God's not interest are the two lies that Satan often gives to us as a stoppage to our prayer life and coming before him. But Jesus says, no, no, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Be proactive. Ask, seek, knock. And there are three different ways that Jesus expresses this. And again, don't try to deconstruct it. It's an emphasis issue. Jesus is trying to get us to get it. He repeats it. Just like parents repeat to their children things too many times, or wives to husbands. you know It's because they're not listening, or they're slow to take it in, and they need that repetition. And that's what Jesus does. He says, I want you to get this. You need to be proactive in prayer. Ask, seek, knock. However you want me to put it, I'll try my best to help you understand. And we need to practice that sense of being proactive in prayer. And that means for me... To be spontaneous and involve God in everything. The things that I've mentioned to you, whatever comes our way, whether it's a health issue, whether it's a finance issue, whether it's a relational issue, whether it's a work issue, a neighbor's issue, whatever it is, we talk to God about everything. That's what it means to be proactive. Whatever worries me, whatever sets off my anxiety, whatever I'm getting excited about, I'm seeing a sense of possibility into something, whatever it is, Talk to God about it. That's what it means to be proactive. Ask, seek, knock. Make God very much part of your life. And prayer is that avenue of making God part of our lives. I love the way in Mark's gospel, we have some friends who take their disabled friend to Jesus for healing. And they get to the house and... The crowd is so much around Jesus they can't get through. So they make a way. That's what being proactive means. (laughs) It's not stopping at the first hurdle. It's not thinking, oh, well, you know, Jesus doesn't care about this man. What's the point? He can never heal him. No, no, no. It's pressing in and making sure we keep on pressing. Ask, seek, knock. That's what Jesus is saying in order to build confidence in prayer. The other thing that I think Jesus is trying to say here is this: uh, it's the story of a man. uh, And Jesus says, even though the man won't get out of bed to help his friend, he wants to care for somebody else and give him the bread because he's his friend. Because, this is what my version says, because of your shameless audacity. He will surely get up and give him as much as he needs. Be persistent. Be persistent. The danger is that we get discouraged so easily. And particularly anybody here who is in my generation and under... We have no resilience or very little resilience. And it seems like as the ages go down, the resilience kind of decreases. Because we want instant results, and we've grown in a society where in a lot of ways, we've seen instant results. Whatever we wanted, we got it really quickly and really easily. So there's very little resilience within us. It's not not our fault. It's just the way society has shaped us. And that permeates to our prayer life. We pray for something once. It doesn't happen, and we just give up. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Keep pressing in. Keep coming. Keep asking. Have that, what my version puts it, shameless audacity to keep asking. Keep asking. Have that sense of persistence. You know, God has a game. And God's highest interest is not to answer my selfish prayers. God's highest interest is not to answer my selfish prayers. God's highest interest is to deepen my relationship with him. And he will do, and this may sound good at a first hearing, but if you delve deeper into it, it's challenging. God will do whatever it takes to deepen my relationship with him. And that sometimes means that he will not give something that he could give at the first time of asking because he wants to build intimacy with him. God wants to avoid us becoming users where we just simply selfishly come to him when we need him on our own terms and then we ditch him and we don't talk to him. For another six months. Until the next problem comes. If he solves it just like that. But instead he wants to build a relationship. He wants to build trust. He wants to show us how good he is. He wants to show us how powerful he is. And therefore. That's why the persistence comes into it. Because God will use. And this is painful. But this is good for me. God will use every opportunity to wean myself of myself. I'm addicted to myself. I'm addicted to what I want to do for things to be done the way I like them. I am addicted to my pride. Everything within me without Jesus is all about me. I'm wrapped in my selflessness, selfishness. And God is absolutely determined. The moment I'm saying, God, I'm surrendering my life to you Come inside of me, clean me up, take out all the garbage and bring all the good stuff in. God is saying, right? Okay, you don't know what you're asking. but We're going to go with this. And as part of that process, God wants to take every ounce of selfishness out of me until I experience that which the Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life that I live now, I live through Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's why prayer is a battle. And sometimes we don't get it. I don't get it. I get frustrated. I think, God, can you just please do it yesterday? And he would say, yes, I could do that. But if I do it, I'm going to use a strong word. You're a whore, spiritually speaking. You just want me to do something for you and then you're never going to come and speak to me for the next three weeks or six weeks because all you want is the result of what you're asking for. You don't want me. You just want the answer to a prayer. And God is absolutely determined to build a relationship with me. And that's why sometimes we have to be persistent. Ask, seek, Knock, And it is in that persistence, it is in that journey, that actually we're beginning to discover God. And you know, it's painful to say it, but it's true to say, I'd rather have it that way. Instead of God being a vending machine that I'm putting my prayer, because he can, he can do anything. And he can answer when I ask. God would become a vending machine, but there would be no relationship. And actually, it's when we go through the incredible valleys and we actually see how powerless we are. That's when his might is being magnified. Otherwise, we would have never seen it. We would have never known just how bad it can be without him and how powerless we are without him and how powerful he is. And that's why he's saying, ask, seek, knock, keep on going. And this is particularly challenging to those who are in my culture, in my generation under, but not just for us, because we're living in a culture that is soft. It finds easy to give up. It struggles to sacrifice. It feels very entitled. And it gets very angry when it doesn't get instant answers. And the kingdom of God is not like that. It is about resilience. The language that the apostle Paul uses when he talks about the Christian life is one of an athlete. One of a farmer. One of a soldier. Every single three of these different pictures, they all... And and some of you have experience of soldiering and some of you have experience of farming... And not so many of us have experience of being an elite athlete. But they all tell you of this. It is about resilience and hard work and, and sweat and tears and pain and toil. It's not the modern picture of Christianity that is being painted from the, the, from the pulpits that are successful in the world we live in. But it's the New Testament picture. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You're a soldier. You're an athlete. You're a farmer. It's hard work. It's repetitive work. It's sacrificial it doesn't come easy. I'm amazed when I, I look at the farmers and, and the hours they put in. You know, and some of them don't know what that thing is called holiday. It's just non-stop, and every season has its own challenges. That's the picture of the Christian life. Not something that we've bought into. That it's all about. Prosperity and health and wealth and self-fulfillment and rubbish stuff like that. And that's why Jesus is saying, prayer is hard. Be persistent. Ask, seek, knock. I'm reminded of the story in in 2 Kings 5. We're not going to turn to it. But Naaman is an Assyrian uh, high-ranking official. And he hears of a prophet of God who does miracles. And he comes and asks for a healing because he has leprosy. And the, 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 the prophet receives a message from God, and he has to dip himself in Jordan seven times. And he's thinking, he's offended. But this is the God that I'm talking to you about. Could God have not healed him right then, right there? Could the man of God not just laid hands on him, or even spoken from a distance and healed him? Of course he could. Jesus healed the lepers without even touching them. As they were on their way to the temple, he healed them. God could do it. But don't miss this. God told him, I want you to dip yourself seven times into Jordan. And he was saying, haven't I got Abana and Papara, the great rivers of, of, of my people? Why on earth do I need to go to the river Jordan and dip myself seven times? There's something in that persistence. There's a lesson in that. And thankfully, he had good advisors around him. He said, come on, man. (laughs) That's my subtitles. (laughs) Come on, man. You know, you've traveled so far. You might as well just go with it. You know, whether you believe it or not, or whether you're offended or not. Just go with it. Wars of Jericho. Could God not just... Made them tumble, you know, with with them breathing from a distance of having a prayer meeting. God has a knack of doing things his own way because he wants to build trust and obedience. And he won't just do it like that in order to satisfy our selfish desires. Ask, seek, knock. I can imagine the guys that were doing the rounds on Jericho were going, Oh man, I'm hating this. How many times do we have to do this? Are, Are you sure you've heard from God? Isn't God cruel? What kind of God is this? Last time when he did a miracle, he did it like that. Why does it have to be like this? The man that Jesus heals by spitting in his eyes. By the way, I don't recommend you try to emulate that. I had somebody do that to me. I'm not kidding. I'm serious. I had somebody spit and put spit on my eyes without my permission. It's not funny. It is, but it's not. He could have said, Hey, you healed the other people, you healed the lepers, you just told them, now you're just spitting and and making mud and putting it on my eyes. But that's what God is like. Keep being persistent. And then Jesus tells all these stories and gives these examples to say to us, Look, be positive. Be positive. God wants to answer that prayer. He he, he gives the example of a friend who is motivated to actually bring the bread and and, and help. And then he uses the example of a father, Father's Day. You know, you had to make a link somehow. (laughs) You know, it's a rhetorical question. Which one of you is a father? And your son asks for a fish. And you'll give him a snake instead. Or you ask for an egg and give him a scorpion. And every father would say, no one. No one does that. And Jesus uses his hyperbolic image to say, see, you think God may be like that? You think God may be cruel or God is withholding things from you? Don't think that. God is better than the best father you have here on earth. And he is willing. He's willing to give you good gifts. How much more will your father in heaven? How much more? Very often we can be so filled with doubt. And there's at least three lies. You know, one is God doesn't like me. And therefore, what's the point in praying and asking God for anything? Because he doesn't like me. I know me, and I don't like me, and God doesn't like me. So if I don't like me, God probably doesn't like me either. Lie number one. Lie number two, I've already mentioned. God doesn't care about this. We somehow have this idea that God doesn't care about our life, but then I don't know what we think God cares about. I'd be really interested to know because we kind of think, oh, God doesn't care about my child being sick. God doesn't care about my job who stinks and my, my boss who is so unfair to me. God doesn't care about that. What does he care about if he doesn't care about that? How, how do we make these categories up in our heads? It's Satan. He lies to us, and he says, God doesn't care about you. And the third one is, it's probably more rare, but God can't do anything about it anyway. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. God is better than your best father you can imagine, and God is willing to give. And it's really interesting, uh, probably my favorite book on prayer, Paul Miller uh, writing about the, the, the three laws, gives an interpretation I've never seen before, And I think it's really interesting. And this is what he says. Why are there three loaves in the story? He says one loaf is for the friend at midnight. A second loaf is for himself so that the friend doesn't eat alone. Then when his friend finishes eating, the host will offer him the third loaf to show his generosity. The host doesn't want to look cheap. His reputation and the reputation of the community are at stake. In summary, the first love is for his friend's physical need. The second is for his relational need for community. The third love is for the heart need to be loved. And here's the punchline We have a three love God. He loves to give. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. To build that sense of confidence in praying. Be positive. Trust in him. He is a good father. We are God's children. If we know Jesus and have a relationship through Jesus, and we accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and embraced that life of discipleship, our status is we are God's children, and we call him father. So we are included in that category. And let me remind you of the truth you already know but a truth that is always sabotaged by Satan. God's care for me and you is not based on mine or your performance, spiritually speaking, but it's based on our identity. What does that mean? You might have had a spiritually lousy week last week. God's not looking at us as if we were in class, and he's setting an exam, and he's saying, Beth, you did well. You got an 8 out of 10 this week. John, on the other hand, missed three quiet times. That's a 3 out of 10 this week. So therefore, when Beth and John, that's not true, or either of them, I haven't got a clue. So therefore, when they come to God, Beth and John don't come based on their spiritual performance and God is saying, Beth, I want to hear what you've got to say because you got an 8 out of 10. John, next week, bro. It is not based on the spiritual performance that we have. It's based on our identity. Both Beth and John are children of God who come to the Father with equal measure. God does not look at that performance and say, it's according to your performance that I will be listening to your prayers. But they both come and they would say, you're my children, beloved, come. That's what God does. Because he's a good father who welcomes us to him. Don't let your prayers be undermined by that. I love Bartimaeus' audacious (laughs) spirit. Bartimaeus is a blind man who's begging on the side of the road. And when he hears Jesus is coming to town, he's thinking, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. I mean, I don't know. Did Bartimaeus hear stories about people being healed? I don't know. Did did Bartimaeus knew that Jesus could heal blind people? I don't know. One thing I know for sure, that when he hears Jesus is coming to town, he's going to make sure Jesus is going to hear him. And people are telling him, shut up. You're just a beggar and you're a blind beggar. And probably what they were thinking at the back of their minds is either you or your parents have sinned and deserve. To be so, you know what Bartimaeus does? He just bows his head, puts his hoodie over his head, and just cries out there saying, Nobody loves me. That's not what he does. He says, I don't care what you guys are saying. I don't care what you guys think of me. I know one thing. Jesus is coming to town and Jesus can heal me. And I'm going to shout even louder. And he's shouting his head off. And Jesus hears him and heals him. And the rest is history. Why? Because he had that audacious trust in his heart. That he knew Jesus was good. And he knew Jesus could do what no one else could ever do for him. That's the kind of praying that God is looking for in our lives. As we try to make sense practically of this, I've, I've been reading a, a book this week and it's, it's it's undone me. It's a book on prayer and particularly corporate prayer or prayer in the church. And it's written by uh, John Omucheka, who's, who's, who's a pastor in New York. City And uh, he, he talks about the importance of prayer in a local church, but it's just undoing me. And I, 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 I literally read probably about six, seven pages, and I have to put it down because it's, it's really messing me up. It, it, it's so deeply impacting and convicting. But he said this, and this is just a taster. He likens, and you would have heard this before, prayer to breathing, you know, and very often uh, theologians and preachers and, and Christian writers have said prayer is like our spiritual breath. So picking up that imagery, he's saying this, we in reality don't treat prayer like breathing. We treat it like prescription medication meant to get rid of an infection. Once the infection is gone, so is the frequency and fervency of our prayers. I don't know about you, but I'll let you into a secret that describes my prayer life so very often. Yet Jesus encourages us to press in. How can we do that? Just three things, and they're going to be appearing on the screen. In this, the first one is this: develop a good biblical theology. There's no other shortcut. Seriously, there's no other shortcut. We can go to seminars, we can read the books, we can listen to sermons, but there is no other shortcut than coming to this book and discovering the the, the, the God that this book reveals. That is going to be the biggest driver of intimacy in prayer. It is reading this book under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and discovering the, the, the God that this book reveals. We starve ourselves of reading this book. We will never discover this God that we will feel we can come and pray to. That's why the two are so interlinked. And that's what it means to have good theology. The good theology comes from this book, from discovering from yourself through the revelation that the Holy Spirit brings. Who is this God? My God. My God. Not somebody else's God. Not somebody that other people talk about, but I've discovered him. He's in here, and I can relate to him. I can know him. Invest in that good theology. And that's why, actually, the prayer and the reading of the Scripture are so much interlinked, and we need to make sure we nurture ourselves of this, because that's what's going to spark and flame our prayer life, because the more we discover who he is, and the truth of who he is, not the lies that Satan gives us, the more we will pray and come to him. The second thing is this. Work out the trust muscle. Seriously, trust, like in any relationship, human relationship. If you get to know somebody, you're not going to trust them. It's not normal, unless you're crazy. <laughs> you don't trust them. You know, if I'm going to a new car mechanic, I, you know... Or a dentist. It's always about dentists and car mechanics. Love you, Mark. (laughs) You know, they, they, they tell you, oh, that's broken. I haven't got a clue. The thing you're describing, I don't know what it even looks like. So I'm basing it on trust. And the longer we develop trust, you know, it's through relationship. It's through talking. It's through engaging with people. That's how trust is being built. Those of you who are in a, you know, in a marriage, you know, you know what I'm talking about even more so. Those of you who've got business partners would know what that's like. It's like a muscle. You work out, and you build that trust. And we need to do exactly the same in our relationship with good. We need to press in and ask God to do things. And that's how trust gets built up. You know, it's that old adage that is so true. Count your blessings. The more we trace God's faithfulness in the past, the more that's going to build muscle, spiritually speaking. I don't know why I'm pointing towards this because there's not a lot of muscle there. You know, but the more we're actually going to be confident to come back to God and ask and ask for more and ask for more and ask for more because we know who he is and we know what he can do. So it's building, working out that trust muscle. And last but not least is keeping the tension between being spontaneous and intentional. In terms of our prayer life, spontaneous and intentional. Spontaneous as in, I talk to God about everything and anything. I wake up sometimes in the morning, I'm in a foul mood, I'll tell him. Lord, I don't even know why I'm in a foul mood. Nobody's done anything to me, I don't know, you know. Or that you wake up in the morning, and as C.S. Lewis often used to say, you have this hound's, of worry and anxiety that are coming at you with 100 miles an hour trying to bite you, and you're thinking, oh, I can't cope with this, I can't cope with this, I've got so much. Tell him. That's spontaneous. Tell him. Or the stuff that's amazing, you know, you enjoy the walk in the countryside, you're loving it, tell him. Spontaneous, just tell him, anything, everything. But then we also need to have that sense of intentional. Because sometimes the spontaneous doesn't work very well. And in order to maintain the relationship, we also need to have the intentional. You you know, husbands, you know what it's like. You know, you you may be bringing flowers spontaneously to your wife, but boy, do not miss the anniversary because you're dead. (laughs) That's what I'm told. You know, that's intentional. You can do the spontaneous and you can do the intentional. It's so important to cultivate that sense of prayer. Let me finish with a picture, or a couple of pictures that are going to come on the screen, and Eli is going to help me. There's a story that is being told uh, that at the time uh, when Spurgeon was in his heyday at uh, the tabernacle in London, five college students were spending a Sunday. They they came from somewhere else into London, and they wanted to hear Spurgeon preach. And uh, a man that greeted them at the door wanted to show them around the place. So he said, would you like to see the heating plant of the church? Obviously, it was a, well, hot in London day in July. And they were thinking, why does he want to take us to the heating plant of the church? But, you know, they were kind of thinking, well, we're guests. We better go with the flow on this. So they consented, and they were taking down a stairway. And then a door quietly opened, and their guide whispered, this is our heating plant. And as the doors opened, apparently the students saw about 700 people bowed in prayer, praying for the service. he was about to begin in the auditorium above. And then the door got closed. And it didn't take them long to realize later on in the service that the man wasn't a caretaker or a deacon, but Spurgeon himself. And I mean, this is the picture of what a tabernacle looked like. I mean, this is the first megachurch church. As well as people are into knocking mega churches. It's <laughs> nothing wrong with you no. know large sized churches It's what you do with no. those life you know uh, uh big big churches but this is amazing and the work that has gone on there and the lives that have been transformed and 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 the way London and the country and us over centuries what was the secret? Seven hundred people in the basement praying for the service that's what it means to be audacious, and to have a God who answers prayer. Let's stand together.